Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, May 26th, 2017. Yeah, it is getaway day here in the United States for the Memorial Day holiday, but this is also signaling the end of the 2016-2017 heresy hurricane season. Yeah. (laughs) We're moving out of that season. Now, it doesn't mean the heresy hurricanes can't happen. It's just a little less likely during the, uh, the off months. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to and whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. And over and again, we demonstrate that what's being taught is yes, <laughs> just a mess. Far, far from what God's Word says or means or anything remotely approaching sound biblical exegesis. And so this is a program that teaches you discernment, how to rightly handle God's Word, a little bit of apologetics along the way, and we try to have some fun. Now, um, today we're going to be doing a light episode. Yeah, a light episode. Some, it's very rare that we do it on, you know, twice a week. This is getaway day. And like I said, this is the end of the heresy hurricane season. And uh, and so as people are heading off to enjoy the three-day uh, weekend here in the United States, you know, I, I myself am, am looking forward to a little bit of downtime, although I still will technically be working. But uh, there won't be a new episode on Monday. And like I said, end of heresy hurricane season. And what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of money to be made in heresy. And so oftentimes, you know, the people who are the heretics during the summer months, they're not very prolific in their spinning of heresy. So what do they do instead? They head off, you know, in their private jets and, you know, to private islands and five diamond resorts around the world and things like that. That's fine. You know, we we we, we don't make that kind of money. So, uh, yeah, we don't get to do that. But uh, it's funny because during this time of the year we get we get really bizarre like movie sermons and things like that. And I was musing on Facebook, you know, how long will it be before we have, you know, a sermon titled "Jesus is the Guardian of the Galaxy"? I'm pretty sure there'll be one this weekend. Just <laughs> give it some time. So during the summer months, uh, we we get movie sermons and third string 
you know, up and coming, you know, vision casting leaders who are not quite ready for prime time. And yeah, we try to mix it up a little bit during the summer. Anyway, so let's talk about what we're going to do today. And that is uh, we're going to be playing another interview, Stephen Kozar interviewing Matt Richard. And uh, if you uh, look through the archives of Fighting for the Faith, you can find a lecture that Matt Richard did at the uh, 2015, the 2015 Road to Reformation event. He and Myself and Jonathan Fisk were the speakers at that event, and he was talking about the different Jesuses out there. And uh, Matt's actually uh, taken that uh, lecture and, and literally expanded it out into a, a book, and um, it's gonna. We're on like the verge of it being published. In fact, I have a pre. I have an advanced copy of it. And, uh, oh, man, great book. Uh, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up is the name of it. And it'll be out in a couple of weeks. And I'll be seeing Matt at the Issues Etc. making the case conference in a couple of weeks out there at uh, in Collinsville. So looking forward to that. But uh, today we're going to be listening to Stephen Kozar interviewing Matt Richard. There'll be a break in the middle of all of this. So uh, let's go ahead and get to it. Here we go. Here's Stephen Kozar of the Messed Up Church blog interviewing Matt Richard. Here we go. Okay, I'm on the line with Pastor Matt Richard. Welcome. Hey there, Steve. Good to have you. Yeah, it's wonderful. I'm excited uh, to visit about the book. This is actually the very first interview on uh, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up. So, Man, yeah, I, it's really, really exciting. I yeah. love that. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of uh, overly competitive at times, and I always... <laughs> I like being the first guy to do anything. So, oh yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. We'll have a good time. Yeah, I, I, I was just telling you before I clicked the record button. I seriously love this book. I just love it. It's such a good book. And um, uh, well, I should probably tell people what the name of the book is. I'm not a, I'm not doing a very good job of getting this thing started here. It's called the twelve. What is it? I don't have it in front of me. The twelve. Yeah. It's it's well the real Jesus. Please stand up, and then with a the question mark, and then. Kind of the uh, subtitle is 12 False Christs. Right. Well, the real Jesus, please stand up. And man, you're you're saying in this book so many things that I've wanted to say or have tried to say. And uh, there's a there's a similarity in, in some of the things you've said. And there's other points where I'm like, oh, man, that was even better than anything I ever thought of. This is good. And it's just full of information. And it's not just full of information that is useful for you to clarify your own faith. But there are tons of hints as to how we can relate to others and how we can share our faith with others and how we can explain it and think through a lot of really tough issues. I'm just thrilled. So that's great. That's great. I feel like I feel like I should be your um, agent or something. I could sell this book. I'm, <laughs> I, if I had the money, I would buy a carton of these. I just pass them out. I seriously, I think it's that good. And and I'm I'm going to be recording an interview with uh, Brian Wolfmuller really soon. And he, his book, which came out about a year ago, is also terrific. And then before that, the one that um, uh, Jonathan Fisk did is terrific. And so all of you guys are are doing just well, a wonderful job of helping explain a really good biblical Christian faith from the Lutheran perspective. And you're doing it in a way that is not like, you know, we all think of Lutherans as being old guys who use archaic language and they can't relate to the modern world. And, and that's not the case at all. Yeah, absolutely. That, that was one of my hopes with this book was to uh, write it in a perspective that, oh, boy, you know, the average person could just pick it up and, and read through it. And, and you know, there's, there's always a difficulty in talking theology. I mean, theology is important. There are distinctions that we make are important. The words that we use are very important to distinguish 
you know, the law and the gospel and so forth. Um, but to do it in a way that uh, doesn't bog the reader down, that it can be a real joy to uh, read a book. And so I, I, I think, boy, man, I, I think that's been accomplished in this book where a person can sit back and read and really enjoy it. Uh, there's some, uh, you know, narrative. There's a narrative. There's stories in it, as well as theology kind of fleshed out in the uh, circumstances of the narrative. So I think, well, I, I really do hope. I hope it, it it captures the theology and also to, it's a joy to read as well. Right. It's funny, too, because um, just this morning I, I re-listened to the Google Hangout that you did with uh, Peter and Jonathan about three years ago when you talked about the survey, the evangelical survey. The um, the that was like a doctrinal thesis, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was my uh, uh, my doctor in ministry thesis, which was exploring the journey of American evangelicals, um, you know, pop American Christianity, as they've journeyed into Lutheran thought, and so uh, ended up hoping I was hoping I was going to interview about fifty people, but I ended up getting about four hundred people who had uh, were transitioning and had transitioned into confessional Lutheran churches. And so examined them really at four different levels um, and, and explored that journey, how long the journey is, what their emotions were, how their language changed, um, what shifts occurred in their worldview, and then also what they were reading, how, how they were approaching the scriptures, how they were reading the scriptures and so forth. And uh, yeah, fascinating study, uh, wonderful stuff that I learned from that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, put a link to that uh, wherever this show winds up getting posted. I'm going to make sure that there's a link to that because I, I think— Enough people probably have not heard that. That's one of the things about the internet. If you do something and it might be really good, but two, three years down the road, it just gets lost. It gets buried beneath all the newer things. Um, so that was a great show. And the funny thing about it is, this is just ironic, sort of funny, but I am going to tease you a bit because you talk about evangelicals who are moving into a confessional Lutheran faith, wind up reading books from dead guys. Here you are, three years later, you got a brand new book. Yeah. <laughs> so you hypocrite you're yeah. talking no but um the, the, I, hope that, I hope that doesn't mean i have to die here for people to read it no, right <laughs> I, that's the that's the joke i always get actually because i'm an yeah. artist everybody thinks they're the first person to ever make the joke that hey when you die your work's gonna be really expensive then then you'll make lots of money no it's not funny <laughs> and uh there are tons of great older books and and uh they're timeless because of the truths that they contain, but it is important for somebody to write to a contemporary audience and to address contemporary issues. And then of course we can redirect people to some of the classics as well. Um, here, here's what I think we should do. I I've got in the, in the near the very end of the book, you have a conclusion where you just give a one sentence summary of the 12 different false Jesuses. And I'm just going to read, I think maybe I'll read, um, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'll, uh, let me just read them, and then we'll go back and we'll and we'll talk through them. How's that? Sounds good. That'll yep. give people an idea of where this is going. Okay, the first false Christ is the mascot, an idol with pompons who encourages his followers in their pursuit of whatever makes them happy. You know, yeah, we have to discuss really what's the correct. Is it pom pom or pom pon? I've heard it both ways. Have you done? Oh. A, have you done any research on that? Because. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't on that. Oh, wait, you, no, I'm just... you probably know the Greek better because uh, that's, you know, we. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just had to go on a tangent there. Yeah, the mascot, that's chapter one. <laughs> the second one is uh, the Jesus who's the option among many, a champion of religious pluralism and pagan tolerance. The third one is the good teacher who is not the incarnate divine Lord and nothing more than a wise religious person. 
And then uh, you got the therapist, Jesus, who reduces sadness, unfulfillment, stress, and averageness. And I love this one. The giver of bling, who grants health, wealth, and success to those whose faith in him reaches the level that it should. That's the, that's the word of faith thing going on there. Then we got the national patriot, who is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the American dream. Ooh, that's, a, that's a tough one because that's, that's very deeply uh, ingrained in our culture. And, boy, I love that chapter, too. The next one, the social justice warrior. This Jesus, he's, he's all about liberating the oppressed from unjust economic, political, spiritual, and social conditions. Then we've got the moral example who emphasizes moralistic living at the expense of forgetting the cross. I'm not even going to go there. That's, that's another big one. The new Moses. This is the Jesus. He's all about giving obscure new laws that are used for a legalistic salvation and spiritual abuse. The mystical friend Jesus, who is a bodiless, spiritualized being living in the heart that exalts signs, wonders, and emotions. Then we've got the feminized Jesus who spends his time cuddling little lambs and coddling emotions because he has been stripped of his masculinity. And finally, the teddy bear, who is a cuddly, safe, and tame, crossless, and anti-intellectual savior. <laughs> oh, man. So we're going we're gonna to do about 14 different uh, episodes, I think, to, to cover all this because you've, you've just encapsulated so much of what is wrong with, you know, with the American church, the... Uh, pop evangelical church but let's start out with that first one the mascot the the one who's just always encouraging us yeah that's yeah. all, he's, well, that's all know, he does he just encourages us he's never got anything yeah. bad to say right yeah this false christ well you know maybe we should back up just briefly and sure. and, and and uh construct uh what what we mean by a false christ or what i mean by a false christ uh what we have to understand is that uh in america we we all as individuals we, we live in a culture that is very, very much um, focused on choice, you know, so we, we, we have before us, we have the ability to choose about anything we want. You know, you go into the grocery store and you want to buy ketchup and you have, you know, maybe uh, a whole row of maybe 25 different bottles of ketchup you can buy. Uh, your iPhones, you know, you listen to Pandora music, you can select whatever music that you want. Um, we, we are, we're used to making choices in our life. Um, you know, the model of car that we want, the color of the carpet, uh, we can go on and on and on our apps on our phone. And so we, we live in this mentality that we, we want what we want and we can get it right now um, by our free will of choosing uh, that which appeases us. And so what happens is we take that mentality and unfortunately we impose that upon Christ, mm -hmm. uh, Jesus Christ of the Bible, and we create what we would say would be an idol. Uh, so we fabricate in our mind uh, who we want Jesus to be for us. And by going that route, we create false Christs, and usually these false Christs are identical to what we want. And so you look at people's personalities, they usually worship a false Jesus, which um, props up their own endeavors and their own agendas. Right. And so this very, this very first one here, uh, the mascot, uh, is essentially what we would say is a hedonistic false Christ. Um, boy, we should, we, should we unpack that word hedonism? Yep. Yeah, hedonism uh, basically means this. I mean, it's a it's a twenty five dollar word, you know, <laughs> more of expensive word, uh, sounding philosophical word. But hedonism is basically the teaching that uh, the main goal in life is to have pleasure, and so you want to be happy at all costs. And so if you're not happy, uh, it's bad, and if you're happy, it's good. And so we we discern life and the circumstances of life. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Which uh, Boy, that's Cheryl Crow. I believe that's that. Right. <laughs> yeah, I actually thought it was Alanis Morissette, but somebody corrected me the other day. It was Cheryl Crow. Cheryl so, Crow. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So she 
she said, uh, you know, if it makes you happy, can't be that bad. And that's hedonism. Um, so hedonism goes the way of pursuing that which gives me pleasure. And whatever gives me pleasure, it must be good. And anything that uh, gives me discomfort or pain is bad. In fact, when other people do inflict uh, things upon you that cause you pain, then you lash out and you say, quit judging me, and you call him a bigot. And mm -hmm. uh, this false Christ, the mascot, goes the way of hedonism. Uh, and this is where it really uh, pulls in here, where uh, this false Christ encourages us with pom-poms. He's a mascot. He's on the sidelines of our spiritual journey, jumping up and down, cheering us in whatever makes us happy. And uh, this false Christ never condemns, never speaks about hell, never speaks about the law, but it's all about us pleasing the God of our gut, which is our own desires for pleasure. You know, um, this is reminding me as you're talking about this, about six, seven years ago, when I started my own transition out of pop evangelicalism, one of the things that happened to me was I just volunteered to lead a, a small high school youth group. And I decided I wasn't going to use any materials because they always tend to be kind of corny and, you know, just not as effective as the Bible itself. I, so I thought, well, we're just going to read through one of the Gospels. That's what we're going to do. And it was a small group, and I knew a lot of the families, so we were comfortable. And it didn't seem weird at all just to have a simple sit down and read through. And we, we, we uh, I picked Matthew. And, man, I remember going, how can we never hear most of this stuff in church? We only hear a handful of passages over and over and over again, and most of it gets ignored. And I think it's because the real Jesus of Scripture will not allow himself to be our mascot. He yeah. yeah, he confronts us, he confounds us, he challenges us, and he walks away, and he doesn't turn around and go, Hey, how come you're not following me? Come on, guys. I, I was really... Um, just incredibly challenged by the Jesus that I, I rediscovered in scripture just from simply reading through one of the gospels. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, this, the, the key characteristics of this false Christ really are two. Um, this false Christ uh, d diminishes and um, actually walks away from the law. And when I say the law, we say basically the 10 commandments, the 10 commandments from Mount Sinai. Um, and so the, the first and second tables of the law to love the Lord God with all of our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves and um, so this this Christ, uh, this false Christ, uh, definitely is, uh, we would say, an antinomian, which is an anti-law Christ. And so uh, the main mantra of this false Christ is, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, and do what feels good, do what makes you feel happy. And so this false Christ will be there always, never to judge, but always to exalt us in our pursuit of our desires of happiness. And uh, so we, we have to think of it from this way. So, so to do that, there can't be anything such as law, because the law makes us feel bad. And by the way, I should mention that when the law comes at us, God's law, uh, it does hurt. It does make us sad. And that's good. Uh, when I'm convicted of my sin, it hurts. Uh, the repentance has a way of grinding us down into a fine powder, which really, really hurts. It's humbling. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very, very hurtful to to stand before the throne of God, uh, you know, in confession, or to to look into your wife's eyes or your children's eyes and say, uh, you know, as a husband or a dad, I failed, or as a pastor, I failed, as an individual Christian, I have failed. It hurts, but yet it is so good because when we are brought to repentance. We can hear about the real Jesus who forgives us of our sins. But this false Christ, 
is all about avoiding the law because the law is uncomfortable and this false Christ is also about avoiding the doctrine of hell. So no such thing as the doctrine of hell with this mascot, mm -hmm. false Christ. All about pleasure, all about whatever makes you happy and <laughs> puts it down to the max, you know, for pleasure. Yeah, it it is a real clear um, example of how we just totally take whatever it is we want in life, whatever we believe about life, and we just superimpose that on, on the Bible and on Jesus. And I, maybe this is one of the most obvious ones, the mascot. Because it, it, it doesn't actually look at what Jesus actually said hardly at all. Maybe the, maybe the woman at the well would be one of the verses that this kind of uh, person would refer to. Because that's the... That's what they can, they can point to that one uh, story and say, well, you see, he doesn't judge anybody. He can judge the woman at the well. They ignore the fact that he said, go and sin no more. Yeah, actually, I think, I think you're referring to the, uh, the one where the woman was kind of called an adultery, right? right? Yeah. The, yeah, uh, yeah, the, yeah. I'm sorry. I was getting the two confused. A woman yep, caught yep. an adultery, woman at the well. Yeah, yep, I had yep, it in my yep. head. I hate that when that happens. But you No, no, that's fine. That's fine. You that's picked fine. up on that really well. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. No, but no, no, but I think I think that's the key point there. Um and so this false Christ, what happens when we read the Bible with the lens of hedonism? Now we have to keep in mind that we each have a worldview. Right. Now the, the way I would define a worldview is basically um, you know, I wear glasses and I look through the lenses that I have and I just went to the eye doctor here a couple of weeks ago and they gave me a prescription. And so you look through this machine and they have all those lenses and knobs and settings. And then when he's all done, he takes all the settings and he writes, you know, all the numbers and the degrees on a sheet of paper. And then that setting, that sheet of paper then forms and shapes the lens that I will look through. Well, we have assumptions and presumptions that we have, that we all have uh, about life, about God, about ourselves, about the uh, nature of reality, how life works, who Jesus is, um, the church, and so forth. And these assumptions we, we, we actually carry with us, and these assumptions and these presumptions that we have, uh, or what we would say presuppositions that we have, they shape and form the lens in which we view life and reality. And so if, if we assume that uh, the goal in life is to be happy— uh, no, we, we'll come back to me this later, that, that there's a such thing as Christian joy, but it's really, really different than uh, we would say more of a pagan view of happiness. But if we view that life is all about being happy, then our lenses in which we view life is going to be uh, looking for that which brings happiness and pleasure. Then we say, oh, that's good. And anything that causes discomfort is bad. And so if we have that lens, right, that right. lens that's been shaped by the presupposition of hedonism, then we go to the Bible, and then we read the Bible through um, that hedonistic worldview, through a lens that's tainted, that's already colored. And so you can go through the Bible, and then when you get to the, the spots where Jesus sounds, you know, a little harsh, you know, where he, <laughs> when he looks at the the uh, Pharisees, and, and uh, you know, he basically says, you know, um, you're children of the devil, uh, which... <laughs> Is pretty tough word to hear. When we see those words, well, you know, we kind of just kind of skirt over that. We, we we read past it. And so we only pick up with our lenses. We only pick up on those verses where Jesus is doing nice and good things. But the, the times where he's speaking harsh truths about hell and the law and so forth, 
we just kind of jump over that. We minimize it. Our lens doesn't allow us to take it in. Right. And so that's that's how we read the Bible. We all do this. I mean, I, I think back to myself in my uh, early Christian years. Um, you know, I'll, I'll look through my old Bibles, and it's it's amazing. I, I go through my old Bibles, and I see all these passages that are underlined. They're all verses on law. Now, the law is very very good, but I was circling these passages about the law, and had all these comments written about how I had to work harder to accomplish that. Uh, you read my Bibles right now, all the verses that I have circled are going to be about Jesus and what he's done to fulfill that law for me. And so I definitely had a different lens in which I read the Bible before than I do now. And that's with all of us. We we approach Jesus, we approach the scriptures with uh, presuppositions, with assumptions uh, that taint our lens in which we read the Bible. And really it dictates um, how we perceive the Christian faith to be. Right. And in the case of this first one, the mascot Christ, uh, no doubt about it, uh, we approach it with hedonism, which is the goal of happiness and pleasure, and to minimize pain, and then we extract from the scriptures, and we extract from the church, uh, the mascot. You know, I, I wrote an article not too long ago called, Assertions and Assumptions Are Not the Foundation of the Church. So you're you're like Steve Kozar right now. You're doing my job <laughs> for me. This is this That's is great. awesome. Yeah. That's great. I, I've I've thought about that so much because, um, in a, in a lot of the things that I write, I'm always trying to, you know, I, we're sometimes just preaching to the choir. We're saying things that our readers have already figured out, and, and we're just, you know, uh, maybe confirming what they believe. But w- what I really want to do is I want to get to the person who's totally lost in in uh, you know a really messed up church. That's why my my blog was called the Messed Up Church, and I realize that as long as they maintain the uh, presuppositions or the assumptions that they have, we're never going to get anywhere because you're right. They will take whatever Bible verse I might show them and say, well, I don't think it means what you think it means because I want it to mean such and such because they have this foundational set of, of ideas of assumptions. And, um, if you start with the idea that, well, you know, I think that God should be like blah, blah, blah. You know, and if I was God, if I was God, you know what I would do? I'd blah, 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 blah. I, I remember thinking, I kind of figured this out in the last 10 years or so. Man, we got to stop doing that. We have to say, if God exists as the ultimate creator of the entire universe, I really shouldn't be thinking about what I believe he should be. I should try. I should be trying to find out who he actually was. If he revealed himself to us, I should try to get that message as pure as I can. I shouldn't be filtering it through my own preconceived ideas about what God should be. So, anyway, yeah, yeah. you know, you, know uh, you bring up a good point there, and and maybe this should kind of help set the stage a little bit about the book too. Um, in each chapter, uh, what I do is I actually introduce people to the false Christ, but I don't necessarily do it from an academic setting. Uh, so each chapter, you meet a person. Now, these people in the book, there's a uh, boy, twelve to fifteen different people that you meet. Uh, in this very first chapter, you meet a gal named um, uh, uh, Jillian. And uh, when when you when you visit and you meet her, uh, the the book the chapter actually opens up where we're in the airplane and we're visiting her and I, and these are uh, these these stories are based upon real life events. They're fictitious people, fictitious situations based upon real life conversations, 
And so you 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 start listening to this conversation uh, with this character, and you visit with her, and you get to know her a little bit. And as you get to know her uh, in the conversation, I will actually pause in the book, and in essence, I pause and say, okay, now here's the reason why she's saying this. This right. is why she views the Christ, uh, this false Christ, this way. And so there's a narrative running through each chapter where we get to meet different people who uh, embody and embrace these false Jesuses or these false Christs. Uh, but the, the the advantage of the book is we actually hit pause, and then I unpack what they're saying and why they're saying it. And I, and I try to show the reader that the reason why they're saying these things and they're reacting the way that they are is because of these presuppositions and their worldview uh, that has caused them to embrace a false Christ. Did I explain that good enough there? I, I, I For you a did. reader who hasn't read this, um, I really want them to understand that there's a story. There's There's 12 different stories, 12 different people that you meet that I encounter. Um, but the, the uniqueness of the book, I think, is that I hit pause, and then I break down what each person, uh, why they're thinking in the, the way that they are. That's You explain that very well. You're a good teacher. I really uh, I got that from the book, that you're doing an excellent job of explaining something that can be kind of complex and multifaceted, but you're explaining it in a way that I, I can't see anybody doing much of a better job than you've done. So this, this, the stories are great. And then you have little boxes with little explanations on the side. Like I was thrilled you had a, an explanation of cognitive dissonance, which is another thing that I've written about in one of my articles about how people have cognitive cognitive dissonance when they, they're holding on to opposing beliefs at the same time, beliefs that really cannot coexist. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's, and that's really, Oh, I'm sorry for interrupting. Um, go ahead. Yeah, that's really at the heart of this is that you have the Bible saying one thing, mm -hmm. and then you have these individuals like such as Jillian that we'll meet in chapter one. Uh, she is a hedonist through and through. And so as a hedonist who wants pleasure and happiness at all all, all costs and really wants to diminish pain, uh, yet she still wants to embrace Jesus. And so really you have you know two or three options. Either one, she admits that she's not you know, a Christian, and she rejects the Jesus of the Bible. Um, or option two is that she repents, you know, that she repents and, and uh, uh, you know, understands the real Christ, who he is. Or option three um, is to create a false Christ. And the reason why people create false Christ is exactly is what we call cognitive dissonance. Uh, we can't live this life uh, embracing two conflicting realities in our mind. And so, in other words, you can't, you know, Jillian cannot be a hedonist and also embrace the real Jesus because they don't, um, they don't, they don't, they're not the same. Uh, you know, Christ doesn't support hedonism. And so if Jillian wants to remain a hedonist and she wants Jesus, um, you know, the only option is is to kick out the real Jesus and create a false Jesus so that there's no cognitive dissonance, so there's no um, tension in her mind, so right. she can live at peace with herself uh, and, and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in Christ, Christ is with me, he wants me to be happy, and uh, I don't have to feel uncomfortable. And one of the things that you also do when you experience cognitive dissonance is you can find the person who's associated with one of those opposing views that's creating all that tension. And you can say they're the problem. And that's where, uh, that's uh, Chris Roseborough's gift to the, to the universe. Everybody can blame him, you know, because he confronts things head on. And often people who hear his program, they say, well, that guy's a jerk. That's the problem. He's a jerk and he's mean and he's not very nice. And, and they eventually have to realize, yeah, but what he said was true. Darn it. I actually read my Bible and, and, but um, 
That should be encouragement to us, though, that if we do confront our friends, our loved ones, and we say, you know, I'm not trying to be a jerk here, but this is what the Bible says. The the reaction from them to say, no, you're the problem. You're the jerk. You're the mean person. You're the bigot. You know, it's because they can't deal with the tension by holding these opposing beliefs. And so for a while, we may be perceived as the problem, but Lord willing, that won't last forever. So. Right, right. Yeah, right on, spot on. Yep. So the cognitive dissonance um, is basically, uh, I, I say this at times too, that cognitive dissonance is basically taking two cats and throwing them in a box. You know, you have this huge <laughs> war. And and so we, we, we can't live um, the realities as human beings. We can't live uh, with, in our mind, uh, the struggle between two competing ideas. And so we always have to reconcile the tension uh, in our mind. And so when it comes to all of these false Christ. They are all created in the minds of individuals because uh, they have assumptions and uh, presuppositions that they're holding to, that they want to embrace. But yet when they encounter the Jesus of the Bible, there's dissonance, there's tension, there's it's, it's like nails on the chalkboard. And the only way to get rid of that is either reject Jesus or repent or create a false Christ. And this goes, this whole book goes the way of that third route where people create false Christ to live to live in peace and harmony in their mind. Right. Um, but as we get through the, the book, we realize that the real Jesus um, won't be seated. He stands up and he confesses, and uh, we see who he is in the scriptures. He will not be silenced. Hmm. That's good. That's good stuff. Okay, let's go to number two. The option among many. This is the Jesus who is the champion of religious pluralism and pagan tolerance. And you could you could say that in each of these categories that there is some element of truth to all of them. That's why they work so well. Because you know, obviously we don't want to create problems amongst people just for the sake of creating problems. We don't want to um, you know, be bigoted. We don't want to be uh, intolerant just for the sake of being intolerant. So there is some truth to getting along with people, especially in American American culture where you, know, you could have 10 people on your street and every one of them goes to a different church or goes to no church at all. But these people are not our enemies, right? We should try to get along with them. So there's some truth to that. But this is the option where we say, and Jesus wants you to get along with everybody and to uh, just, you know, uh, make these assumptions about everything, about heaven, about hell, about the afterlife, about judgment. And the assumption is we're all going to the same place. This is the Jesus who says, hey, you know, I'm just one of the options, <laughs> um, which is crazy. If you actually read what Jesus said, he could not be more clear, right? Right. He right. never he never said, I think I might be the way. I'm not sure. There might be other ways. That's not, I don't remember that verse. Do you remember that verse? Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, we go to John 14 um, when he says, I am uh, the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. And what's interesting in that verse uh, if you go to the original language, the original language of uh, the Greek language, uh, it's very, very clear that Jesus doesn't use um, an indefinite article. In other words, technically speaking, he doesn't say, I am a way, a truth, and a life. He hmm. actually puts, uh, in that Greek, we see the article, the, which makes it definite. So he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So in other words, uh if he wanted to be more of an option among many, he would have put uh, no definite article. He wouldn't have put the word the, but by putting the definite article, it narrows it in as him being the only option of truth. And so 
this false Christ um, that we see here, this is, uh, we meet actually in chapter two, a guy named Tamar, and uh, meet him at a coffee shop. And uh, he he really wants to embrace Jesus. He appreciates Jesus as a teacher from watching the History Channel and so forth. And so he, he wants to embrace a Jesus, but a, a, a Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life uh, is too definite, too narrow for him, because if that is true, then all of these other religious gurus um, are then wrong, and he can't handle that. That, that That's too judgmental. That's right. too, um, that's lacking tolerance. It's not loving to say that. And so he takes John 14, and he X's out or whites out the word the, and he puts the word a, <laughs> so that Jesus is a truth and a life and a way to the Father. And so that is the key characteristic. So uh, like you said before, um, all of these false Christs, there's an element of truth to all of them, but then they either, they do a couple things, they either add to the, the real Jesus of the Bible, or they subtract from the real Jesus of the Bible. Um, in fact, boy, I'm, I'm really excited about this, when when the uh, launch site for the book comes out, there's going to be uh, downloads. I, I created a PDF sheet where I took all 12 false Christs, and I listed the real Jesus on the left. And then I had columns where you either subtract or add. And so I kind of create a mathematical formula. And this is my old finance background. So I took the real Jesus and, uh, for instance, like going back to chapter one, right, the hedonistic, you take the real Jesus, you add hedonism, and you subtract hell, and you subtract the law, and you get the mascot. Oh, wow. Uh, This one here, you take the real Jesus, and you add uh, religious pluralism, and you subtract his exclusiveness— and then you get the option among many. And so all of these false Christs are created by either adding to the real Jesus or subtracting from him to create a new uh, false Christ that is reconciled and uh, that can reconcile in the mind of the person uh, who is struggling with the real Jesus. Hmm. You, are, you are a total nerd. I love it. In the <laughs> best sense. that. I have to send you that sheet. It's it's pretty fun to look at. Yeah, um, you really break it down. You've done a number of things like that, haven't you? I remember I've I've uh, downloaded some of the some of the stuff that you prepared for your own Sunday school class, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah, always fun with the little sheets. Trying to keep uh, you know boil the things down just to right. to one sheet for the average person uh, to really grab hold of. You know, so that's that's great to do that way. Yeah, and sometimes people are very good at uh, seeing things visually more so than just reading a sentence or two. So. That's cool. I love that. There's a lot of different ways to try to explain the same thing, you know. And, yeah. Uh, okay. So the uh, the thing I was going to say was, so far we're talking about people who live in a postmodern world who have these ideas of these false Christs, and postmodernism is a uh, kind of a philosophical framework that has really taken over American culture. And what I liked about uh, also in your book is that you address postmodernism more than once and you try to explain what it is and the problems with it. And it's a it's a huge aspect to why we have such a hard time, you know, explaining the historic Christian faith. Uh, Thoughts about that? Yeah. um, You know, when we think about postmodernism, boy, I mean, it it comes across as a a very, you know, big sounding word. Um, But what we have to keep in mind is this is. Uh, boy, let me let me just spend two minutes here, just give a, a real quick overview of 2,500 years of philosophical history. Um, way back in the time of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, I mean, we're talking 
four or five hundred years before Jesus, uh, uh, his advent in the manger, um, what we see is there was a time where they had these guys called the Sophists, and uh, uh, there was a guy, a real fancy guy named Protagoras, and he he said this is that man is the measure of all things, and all things uh, man is the measure of, and so in other words. He saw that truth uh, was up to the individual eye, so the individual person. Truth is what a person wants it to be for themselves. Well, obviously, uh, that kind of mentality, if everybody is going around saying, I believe uh, you know, what I believe, and truth is up to what I think it's going to be, a society cannot function that way. A society falls apart, and this is the reality that Aristotle and Plato and Socrates realized, and they actually fought against this mentality of the sophists, hmm. uh, Protagoras. And so we've had, since their time, we've had about, boy, 24, 2,500 years of, of uh, Western civilization uh, that has realized that there's an objective truth, uh, that there's, there's a truth outside of us. And so, um, but what's been happening since, boy, the 1900s or even way back to the Enlightenment mm-hmm. is this idea that, that truth is up to the individual person. And so then as a result of that, we have people saying, well, uh, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. Well, you know, <laughs> the reality is that mentality is the mentality of the sophists. And so we're, we're returning to that which our Western civilization forefathers fought against. Hmm. Uh, you know, we think of Plato and Aristotle and those guys. They fought against us. They saw that this kind of ideology would have been the destruction of society because when you cannot agree on objective truth, you can't communicate. You can't talk. There's 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 uh, uh, it's anarchy. Right. Um, and so what we have is in this reality, we have this emergence of of postmodern thought, which is basically neo neo being new neo sophism, uh, neo neo sophist ideology uh, that's occurring in our day and age. And so, really, that comes into play with this as well. People say, "Well, my Jesus is like this." <laughs> you hear that all the time. Well, my Jesus wouldn't judge you, or my Jesus is this way. My Jesus wouldn't exclude. And so, we're identifying truth not in the scriptures, the revealed word of God, but we base truth upon the mind of the individual, what the individual believes is true for themselves. Yeah. Uh, it's extremely, extremely dangerous um, ways of thinking. Uh, it just It's the destruction of, of language, it's the destruction of civilization, and so forth. And so that's at play as well in these false Christs, where individuals, uh, not only through the way of choice and idolatry, um, but also uh, postmodern relativism, uh, this idea that truth is up to the individual. So, you know what? I make Jesus true for me the way I want him to be, and you make Jesus true for you the way you want him to be, and uh, we're supposed to tolerate each other. Right. Um, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> well, and I think that for some people who haven't really thought about this a whole lot, they are confused because, well, I like pineapple on my pizza, and you don't, and we still get along. It's just a matter of opinion. Isn't this the same thing? And there isn't a distinction made between things that don't really matter, things that are just opinions, just personal taste, personal preferences, and then the idea of truth itself. And and we uh, kind of uh, crisscross those two back and forth as if they were the same thing, but they are not the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 so I mean, yeah, we're we're not talking about preferences such as the color of the house. What we're, we're you know, color of houses or color of cars. Uh, what we're actually dealing with is 
this idea of an objective uh, standard, of objective reality. And so, you know, give you example. This boy, this will put us really in the ditch. But uh, <laughs> when it comes when it comes to marriage, I mean, right? And so we've had the same definition of marriage uh, for thousands of years. Uh, understanding what marriage is, but now all of a sudden we've emerged in our new culture here, uh, this this emerging postmodern culture that marriage is up to what we want it to be for ourselves, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we have competing definitions of marriage and we can't appeal to anything objective. And we see this all the time. If you appeal to something objective, um, even the, the, the laws of nature, uh, you can appeal to the laws of nature and uh, people will balk at it and say, you know, who are you to judge me? And then they'll accuse you of intolerance right. um, <laughs> for doing that. And so the, the, the rise of the, the accusation of that you should not judge or the rise of the accusation of intolerance, the rise of the, um, you know, the, the heart sign that everybody makes with their hands and that we're all supposed to love, this is a direct correlation connected in with postmodern relativism. Mm-hmm. And so it's basically saying we all got to love each other. We all got to tolerate each other. And how dare you uh, deem my opinion as being incorrect or wrong? That's not loving. You're challenging uh, myself and who I am and what I believe truth to be. And I think, frankly, the reason why people are so um, quick to judge on the labels of tolerance and don't judge me is that when we base truth in ourselves, boy, then you have to defend it with your whole being. Hmm. Whereas you know, for me as a Christian, if somebody attacks me on something, I don't have to get defensive because I'm not the one who embodies truth. I'm not the one who has uh, created a whole philosophical system within my own mind that I have to uphold. I realize that truth is bigger than Matt Richard, uh, that I stand in the the lineage of thousands of years of great thinkers that have come before me. um, And I also stand captive to the Word of God. And so if somebody attacks me, uh, they're not attacking me. They're attacking the Word of God. And uh, therefore, then I don't have to get so individually uh, invested in a way where I have to lash out and attack people. I can say, you know, that's that's fine that you believe it. Let's look at that. Let's talk about it. But when we live in this postmodern culture where truth is located in the individual person, then you bet when you're challenged, that's the reason why people get so agitated and so angry and so defensive right. is because you're attacking their uh, individual truth that they've embraced for themselves. Which is Uh, crazy because if you actually believe that everybody has their own truth, you wouldn't be offended by anybody else's truth. Exactly. Exactly. So (laughs) to to even call yourself a liberal today means something completely different than the original meaning of the word. The original meaning was to be generous, was to consider all options and to be free and open about hearing other people's points of views. That was generally the idea now it means I have a very narrow set of beliefs and everybody else is wrong. And they're wrong because they have a narrow set of beliefs, <laughs> which right. is an unbelievable contradiction. It's, right. you know, and uh, you're exactly right. If if we say, well, I'm a conservative and I hold my beliefs because they're tradition and that's what America was founded on or something to that effect, then you're kind of doing the same thing as a liberal. You're saying my group has the right ideas. But we as Christians need to be saying, no, we believe that God has revealed himself. He has spoken to us. He's given us his word, and his word is beyond us. It's not uh, something that our group validates. Uh, our, our group is nothing. The word of God is where we get our truth from. And maybe we're part of a group, a group that adheres to God's word, but that, that doesn't validate God's word. God himself validates his word. 
Absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, uh, you know, thinking of this false Christ, the option among many, uh, this false Christ goes away of what we would say is a pagan tolerance. Now, there's a difference between tolerance and love. Um, the Bible goes the way of love. And uh, you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 13, you also think of Ephesians 4 that talks about love, that love uh, you know, speaks itself. Uh, the truth is spoken in love to each other. The truth does not tolerate error. Uh, the truth uh, uh, endures all things. And so Christians love, we don't tolerate and so tolerance is more of a pagan virtue. And in fact, I would say that tolerance has evolved in our culture to the point that not only are we to tolerate another person's point of view, but that we are to intentionally exalt it and to enforce and to uh, encourage them in their thought. And so, you know, it's not just simply putting up with somebody else who you may disagree with, but you are now in a position in our culture that you have to go out of your way to uphold and lift them up and to applaud them. Right. Um, and and that's that's our view of uh, pagan tolerance, but the way of the Bible uh, is love. And I talk about this in in that chapter too. That that generally speaking, when the word tolerance is used in the Bible, it's used in a negative connotation. It's used as a bad characteristic, hmm. whereas uh, Christianity goes the way of love. There's a huge distinction between love and tolerance. In fact, I think our culture, when it talks about love, um, does not understand uh, what real agape. Uh, as the Bible used the Greek word agape, does not understand real agape love. Yeah, because we we tend to view love as an emotion based feeling. Right, right. Well, you know, First uh, John um, three sixteen, we know what love is. Uh, you know that that that, or even John three sixteen, First John three sixteen, and John three sixteen, uh, we know love is is this that Jesus Christ laid down his life. That's First John three sixteen, and John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he had a fluffy. You know, yeah. <laughs> he, he didn't have a fluffy feeling. He so loved the world that he gave. He mm -hmm. gave his one and only unique son. And so we see love not only as emotion, but also in sacrifice, um, emptying yourself for another, uh, dying and bleeding of Jesus on the cross. And uh, and so, I mean, you think about this. If, if Christ, if the real Jesus, right, so if the real Jesus would have tolerated our sin— he wouldn't have gone to the cross for us. We'd still be damned and left in our sin. Hmm. But because he could not tolerate our sin, he set out to do something about it, which means that he went to the cross to bleed and to die. And so when people say, oh, Jesus is tolerant, tolerant, um, it's a bunch of malarkey. I mean, it absolutely is. Jesus was not tolerant of sin because if he was, he wouldn't have died on the cross. He was very intolerant of sin, and that's the reason why he went to that cross and he drank that cup of wrath and he suffered and bled and died for us because he wanted to do he wanted to do something actually about our sin, and that's being an atonement for it and putting an end to it. Okay, that's a perfect stopping point. Uh, let's let's pick this up after the break. Sounds good. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's interview. Stephen Kozar interviewing Matt Richard. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. 
We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Already? Right, uh, package for you, ma'am. Just uh, sign there. Oh dear, I was expecting something a bit larger. Is that all there is? Uh, afraid so, ma'am. Uh, sorry to disappoint. Oh, <laughs> no worries. I'm sure more will be on the way. Uh, thank you so very much. Uh, have a good day, ma'am. I wonder what's in here. I do hope I haven't been ordering chips in my sleep again. Oh, it's a DVD! Oh, I said better not be another one of those Lectio Divina thingies. Hello! If you are watching this, it means that you have purchased the post-apocalyptic preparedness package. You have bought the... Bronze Edition. Bronze Edition? Please don't be alarmed, as your full order will be arriving within the next few weeks. Next few weeks? The end of the world might have happened by then. I should have paid the extra $99.99 for the faster shipping. The purpose of this DVD is to catalog everything that you will be receiving in the Bronze Edition package, along with information on our other great offers. Looks like there are different chapters to select from. Let's see here. Toiletries, clothing, nourishment, shelter, sanitation, medicine, gardening, energy, communication, weaponry, underwater basket weaving... Okay, additional accessories, expansion packs, and ooh, play all. <laughs> I'll choose that one. As you know, God has given us signs in the sun, moon, and stars that the end times are approaching. After the destruction of your country, the everyday comforts you currently enjoy will have been disintegrated by God's judgment. By investing in our merchandise, you have proven to God that you have audacious faith in his prophets, seers, and visionaries. Now we're ready to dive into the crucial survival equipment you have purchased. Well, I'm certainly glad that God knows I'm faithful. No doom and gloom for me. You have purchased the... Bronze Edition. Please pay attention to which items you will be receiving. I have my new pad ready. Part 1. Toiletries. In the Bronze Edition, your toilet paper will be made from the finest scratchy banana leaves and corrugated tree bark. Toilet paper made from scratchy banana leaves and... Wait, what? In the Silver Edition... Your toilet paper will be made from all-natural, organic, recycled plastic. In the gold edition, your toilet paper will be made from hand-quilted spider silk. This can't be right! In the bronze edition, you will receive a block of wood with bristles and a baking soda solution for maintaining healthy teeth and gums. Here's a pro tip. You can use your own hair as dental floss. Yeah! In the silver edition, you will receive... Oh my! I sat on the remote! It's fast-forwarding! Um, uh, where's that darn play button? Oh, oh, wait, there it is! Part 5. Nourishment. In the Bronze Edition, you will receive 24 cans, each containing one month's supply of beans. As a nifty space saver, the cans are first filled with fresh river water, then topped off with dehydrated beans. This way, you'll have your food and water in the same convenient package. Strainers and can openers will not be included.
The Silver Edition will provide dried fruit and vegetable packets along with a 36-month supply of chicken noodle soup and 50 gallons of distilled water. The Silver Edition will provide dried fruit and vegetable packets along with a 36-month supply of chicken noodle soup and 50 gallons of distilled water. What? How is that even fair? Gold Edition buyers will be given 50 crates of freeze-dried astronaut dinners. Flavors include chicken cordon bleu, lobster surprise, filet mignon, oysters, caviar, and steak. Cheese platters will be served on the side of every dish. Water will come in glass bottles along with a complimentary water fountain with color-changing LEDs. This is ridiculous! I can't believe I wasted my cat's life insurance on this! What else is in this stupid thing? Gold Edition shelters have been constructed by our teams ahead of time for you. You will be getting your maps and keys to access your top-secret bunker in the coming weeks. Complimentary bouncy castles and jacuzzis can be found next to the theater room behind the bowling alley. In the Silver Edition, you will get him and her matching gardening gloves. For prosperous crops, this edition includes an inflatable, radiation-proof greenhouse. Part 33. Communication. Now pay attention, bronze buyers. Using two of your Space Saver nourishment cans, you can attach this six-foot string to each side to make an electricity-free telephone. As a special promotion, we will also be giving out 12-foot strings for long-distance calls. Gold Edition weaponry includes six holy hand grenades, one hideaway moat, and... I can't believe this! They didn't say anything about different editions on the website! How, how do I upgrade? I can't survive with any of the useless junk they're sending me. What are the shams of these sleaze balls running? I could have sworn she said something about expansion packs. Additional accessories, such as a Holy Ghost decoder ring or a church pop CD, can be purchased individually for $24.99 each. Please wait for our full accessory list. Ah! I don't want to hear any more of this rubbish! Part 104. Expansion Packs. Our hottest item is the Mr. Sparkle Party Pack. This little number comes with four sparkle suits, one disco ball, seizure-inducing strobe lights, and confetti poppers. It's fun for the whole family. I want my money back. This is an absolute outrage. I can't believe I fell for this ruse. This concludes our DVD presentation. If you have any questions, please call the number not located at the bottom of your screen. And remember that all payments are non-refundable and non-negotiable. Thank you, and have a wonderful apocalypse. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today.
warning, listening to Finding for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. (laughs) What are the real possibilities listening to this program? Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Uh, When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you choose. That's right. There are four ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. And then from there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support our program and our outreach. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of Stephen Kozar's interview with Matt Richard. Here we go. Okay, I'm back with Pastor Matt Richard, and we're talking about his new book. And the name I have already forgotten. (laughs) We've been talking. (laughs) Tell me the name of it again. I keep thinking the 12 False Christ, but I know that's not the actual name. That's the subtitle. Yeah, it's a subtitle, but uh, yeah, d- uh, will the real Jesus please stand up? That's it. And uh, twelve false Christs, and uh, you know, you know, people have said, well, where did you get that title? Well, there's an old game show. I don't know if you remember, boy, I think it was in the '80s. Uh, they have different individuals, and they describe them. And then at the very end, what they they would say, well, the real Susan, please stand up. And there was like four people, and then the real person would stand up. And so it was a game oh. show that was based off of. And then and then I know a lot of people have said to me, they said, well, there was a uh, a uh, rapper called Eminem who had, well, the real Slim Shady, please stand up. And and he actually, I'm sure he got it from the game show. So uh, <laughs> that's kind of in the back of my mind as, a, as I was writing this book, I was thinking of a title. So I was thinking of that old game show that I watched when I was a kid. And then also <laughs> the Eminem rapper talking about the Slim Shady. But I think it's a, it's a real catchy little title um, asking the real Jesus to stand up in the mix of all of this uh, chaos of false Christ. And as we hear in the last chapter, uh, we don't have to ask the real Jesus to stand up. He is standing. Uh, he's standing at the uh, uh, standing in vic- victory, alive and victorious uh, with nailed, scarred hands for us. Hmm. Well, let's go to the next one because we're not going very fast here, but that's okay. Uh, we're only on number three, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> so, man. <laughs> no, this is good, though. I. One of the things that I, I I keep trying to do in uh, interviews or with articles that I write is we're trying to talk to people who are confused by what they're seeing in the church, and you can't give uh, quick answers to really deep, multi-layered problems. You have to get down deep to some of those, like we said before, the the presuppositions or the the foundational ideas. If you don't get rid of those foundational bad ideas, um, you're just kind of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, so to speak. So I think that the the discussion we had was really good, especially about postmodernism and about how people have presuppositions that they bring to their faith and they basically create a fake Jesus. Uh, okay, so so with, with having said that, let's go to number three. This is the, the Jesus who is the good teacher. And this uh, right away reminded me of uh, when I was a teenager 
in the 70s and the 80s, uh, I was really deeply influenced by C.S. Lewis and by Josh McDowell in his book, um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he uh, addressed this pretty head on, the idea that Jesus was a good moral teacher just doesn't make sense. And and, uh, C.S. Lewis talked about that's like saying he was a poached egg. Remember that? You know, boy, I know that uh, Josh McDowell book, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uh, I read that several years ago. Uh, Very good book. And he actually, well, he kind of lays it out in a nice diagram. He said, if if Jesus is not the divine Lord, uh, then he was either a lunatic or he was a liar. And he goes and expounds on all that. Uh, So very good book on that that subject as well. Well, he got a lot Uh, of his stuff from uh, John Warwick Montgomery, which is really cool because I went to the Apologetics uh, uh, Academy in France last year and studied with with Dr. Montgomery. So it was really neat to kind of, in my own life, come full circle and to realize that there's still some really good teaching being done. Um, and so, so anyway, that's a, that's an aside. But but this idea that Jesus is a good teacher really fits well into the postmodern, everybody be tolerant of everybody else culture that we live in. Because if Jesus was just a good moral teacher, then we can just uh, ignore all the stuff he said about hell and the blood and the cross and all that stuff. We can just sweep that under the rug and make him out to be a nice guy who's going to encourage us to be good neighbors. And again, there's truth to that. Obviously, we should be good neighbors. But if that's all he did, he's just a a real failure of a teacher because he wound up getting himself killed for absolutely no reason. Right, right. Well, in in this chapter, we meet a college professor named Mr. Darby. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Mr. Darby, he is um, a character and a person that we meet who who, uh, again, he, he wants to embrace Jesus. He has some fond memories of Jesus from his childhood, going to Sunday school with his grandma. And so he doesn't want to completely reject Jesus, but yet, you know, he he's a uh, more of a secularist, in in, in essence, an impossible atheist. I mean, we, we really don't know as we encounter Mr. Darby uh, if he's a fully committed atheist or not. Uh, but regardless of that, uh, what we hear from Mr. Darby is that he— uh, imposes his reason over top of the Bible. And so that's what we very, very in fancy theological terms call a magisterial use of reason. Right. So like a ma- like a magistrate or a judge, he puts his mind and his reason and his intellect over top of the Bible. And as he does that, he looks at the Bible, the miracles of Jesus, the uh, phenomenon of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. And he says, you know what, that is too much um, beyond uh, you know, what I would perceive to be uh, uh, real in this life. So then he, like a strainer, he strains out. Uh, again, we talked about taking the real Jesus. Uh, what does he add or what does he subtract? Well, he subtracts and strains out the divine, the divinity of Jesus and the divine miracles of Jesus, the walking on the water, uh, him doing all the healings and all that. He strains all that out. And then as we strain out the divinity of of the real Jesus, then we're left with just a good moral teacher. And so this is where Mr. Darby wants a good moral teacher because then uh, this Jesus is safe uh, mm-hmm. for him. And then he can embrace him and and respect him probably to honor, but we, we kind of pick up the, on this in chapter in this chapter that he's he doesn't want to reject him because of uh, those fond memories growing up as a kid. So he can kind of honor his his grandma and grandpa and 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 his his heritage of Christianity, uh, but yet at the same time he doesn't have to um, position himself underneath Jesus 
uh, and his reason underneath Jesus, he can stand above Jesus and almost make him a puppet. And, mm. th- and really, that, that's, that's what all these false Christs are. They are a puppet. You know, if you think of a puppet, the uh, person puts their hand inside the puppet or they have strings attached to the puppet. And those strings, as you move them, you dangle that false Christ and you prop them up and you can make them do what you want. Yeah. And that's really Mr. Darby. What he's doing here is he's stripped the divinity of Jesus, which makes this not, a, not the real Jesus of the Bible, but a false Christ. And then he imposes his reason over top of that uh, false Christ. And then he says, well, you know, I, I, I kind of read the Bible, but I don't le- read it literally. I mean, we've heard that before. People say, I don't read the Bible literally, which is a code word, if we want to translate what they mean by that. I don't read the Bible authoritatively. Hmm. Uh, I read it on underneath my reason and my intellect and uh, my way of viewing things. So, again, uh, Mr. Darby creates a false Christ in chapter 3. He reminded me of the philosophy of religion professor that I had. It sounded, it sounded like the same guy, which uh, he was a former Christian who taught philosophy and was very snarky and derogatory towards the Christians in his class. <clears throat> and at the conclusion of our class, he he made it pretty clear that he, he really wasn't a Christian anymore, but he never really came out and said it directly. So after our uh, our finals, he took the last class and he explained his story and told us how he was one of the guys that went to school with, oh gosh, I don't know if I can remember his name now. In the late 50s, early 60s, there was a very famous missionary who went to Ecuador and was martyred. Uh, Elizabeth, um, his his wife went on to be, become a very prominent writer. <sighs> I hate it when this happens. Anyway, he went to school with this guy at Wheaton College. Elliot. Jim Elliott. He went to school with Jim Elliott, who was a very... Yep, yep, yep. yep. I mean, he was on the cover of Life magazine. That that whole event was a real big deal in its day. And Elizabeth Elliott went on to be a very prominent Christian writer for many, many years. He went to school with them, and he basically had abandoned his faith because he studied philosophy, and he just couldn't uh, rationally, you know, make sense of it all. But the thing that he said, he said, I am not an atheist. And he said, I am a believing agnostic. That was a term he invented. And this is how he defined it. He said, I don't think there's enough evidence to believe in God, but if there is one, I believe in him. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. That's exactly what he said. Wow. Wow. Yeah. In other words, if there is a heaven and hell and there's a slight chance I might still get in, I'm going to phrase things in such a way that I'm giving myself uh, at least a, a slight chance to get in, even though he was wrecking people's faith every single you know, day of his career. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, and this is very similar to Mr. Darby. Um, you know, he wasn't, he, as, we, as we meet Mr. Darby in, in that chapter, chapter three, um, you know, we get this impression that he's an atheist, maybe, but then yet he kind of drifts mm-hmm. uh, to agnosticism, which is, you know, not fully committed as an atheist. And then there's times where we, where we hear with Mr. Darby, there's almost a fondness with Jesus going back to his childhood memories. And so, you know, there's a sense where he can't pull the trigger and just flat out reject the Jesus of the Bible. He's not willing to do that. Uh, so he wants to embrace Jesus insofar as that he can have Jesus in his debt, in his control. And so, again, he he strips the divinity of away from Jesus. He strips the divine and miraculous things of the Bible out. He filters it out with a magisterial use of reason, mm-hmm. as a magistrate with his reason, and then um, he creates a good teacher. 
and so then he can respect Jesus as a good teacher insofar that he is not divine, but just a mere good teacher. Yeah, and and if you actually read what Jesus said, he will not allow you to turn him into just a good teacher. It just doesn't make sense, because a good teacher wouldn't lie. Right. But he claimed well, to be the Messiah. He he made these outrageous claims. So he's not a good teacher. He's He's got to be the actual Lord of the universe or an absolute lunatic. But everybody knows he's not a lunatic because everybody agrees he was a, he was a great moral teacher when he did teach on moral topics. And so nobody can say he's a lunatic. So, yeah, the, the Josh McDowell idea that he was either Lord, lunatic, or liar is it's probably not a perfect grid, but it's pretty good. I haven't found a way to explain it better. Well, and on top of that, too, I mean, if Jesus was just a good teacher, uh, then we are—I shouldn't laugh, but I mean, I, then we're left damned in our sins. I mean, you know, only God can—you know, only only Jesus as God in the flesh can make a payment for sin. If he was just a mere man, um, you know, a mere man cannot pay for sin, cannot um, defeat death and the devil um, and this, the old sinful Adam. Uh, but because he is divine Lord, he has the power— to atone for our sins and to rise again to new life. And so if we either strip his divinity or we strip his humanity, either way, hmm. if we strip his divinity or his humanity, we are left with the false Christ. And we'll get into this later on. I think it's chapter 11. Uh, we see the mystical friend. Yeah. And that's that's the opposite, where Mr. Darby stripped Jesus of his divinity the uh, people, I boy, I think I remember Zach and Mindy in chapter eleven. They actually stripped Jesus of his humanity, and they left. They're left with a divinized, uh, uh, ethereal, uh, floaty, spiritized false Christ that kind of dwells in the in 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 their heart, in the caverns of their heart, and they 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 have locked him up in their emotions and their heart. Uh, and so they've confined him uh, to the depths of their emotions. And so that's another false Christ. So hmm. that's going the opposite direction. So Mr. Dar Mr. Darby and Zach and Mindy, they're opposite sides of the coin. One reject, uh, Mr. Darby rejects his divinity, where Zach and Mindy in chapter 11 reject his humanity. Okay, so let's go to the next one, the therapist, Jesus, who reduces sadness, unfulfillment, stress, and averageness. And I'm really curious... If if you don't mind telling us a little bit about your experience being a evangelical uh, pastor at a seeker friendly church, isn't that uh, what you did for a while? Yeah, you know, I I served boy several churches. Um, you know, it's more than anything. It was it was me as an individual pastor. I had bought into. I was a part of one church that was very very much seeker friendly church growth. Um, we 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 followed Rick Warren's mm -hmm. purpose driven life. Uh, we bought hook, line, and sinker into it. But more so, too, for myself as a pastor, um, I bought into the whole church growth movement. And then once I kind of got uh, fed up with that, I bought into the emergent church movement. Hmm. And um, I was gun-ho. I mean, I, I, I had, uh, boy, um, I'm trying to think, uh, Rob Bell's books. I read all of Rob Bell's books. Uh, he's he's an absolute heretic. Yeah. Uh, that That's the best construction. I don't know how else to say it better than that. He he, he's just off his rocker. And um, so in this realm, yeah, I, I went down this road myself, and, and I had bought into what we call Keswick theology, mm -hmm. which is what we, we, we are introduced into the uh, therapist Jesus, and we meet— um, meet some um, some ladies in this chapter who have this uh, Bible study where all these individuals are gathering, and they're attempting to move people from averageness, 
you know, just being a baptized Christian into greatness. And uh, this is something that um, I guess I, I can say that I, I have done, um, and I'm you know, not proud of it, but I have uh, pushed uh, parishioners this way in the past. And in other words, uh, Keswick theology creates a two-tiered uh, view of Christianity. So you have um, just this 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 normal level Christianity, and then you have a second tier, which is greatness. And so then a higher life, a higher life. Yep. And so to to get to that higher life, you need a false Christ. You need Jesus, right? But he's not the real Jesus of the Bible. He's a false Christ. And this Christ, this false Christ, is used as a base that you know, like in baseball, you're rounding a base to get to home plate. And so he's like a base that you round or or a mechanism to to get you to that second tier. So what this looks like is simply this. Jesus then becomes a means to joy or Jesus becomes a means to success or Jesus becomes a means to greatness rather than Jesus being our joy and Jesus being our greatness and Jesus being our success. Hmm. So big distinctions there. Well, you, and so, did, go ahead. I'm sorry. We, yep. we could do a whole show on the, on the Keswick movement because it had such a gigantic influence. I've been reading um, George Marsden's book, Fundamentalism in American Culture. Yep. Great book. Great book. And it's really deep. It's really intense. And he goes into a lot of detail. And I, um, I'm i going to be teaching at the Pirate Christian Conference this uh, August. And I want to give people a, a picture of where the church is today and where where its ideas came from because they don't just come out of nowhere and Keswick theology has played a very prominent role and by the way Keswick looks like Keswick it was a it was a movement that began in Britain it came to America the second half of the 1800s and it was it was in that movement that a number of things happened one of which is this idea that you don't get your um your most important beliefs from your pastor at your local church, you get them from the new guy who's teaching at the conference coming up next summer. And he's got a new way of saying things and it's exciting. And he's probably got a book and you're going to take that idea and run with it for a year until next year when you go to the next conference. And there's another guy with an even better way of saying something with his book. And I thought that was something that, you know, we were experiencing only for the last few decades here in America, but it's been going on for much longer. And um, I didn't connect it with the therapist like you just did. I w when, when I heard you talk about the therapist, Jesus, I started thinking about how, um, especially in the seeker-friendly church, the pastor sees his role as a type of counselor or a life coach. You know, he's, he's going to give a sermon that's practical. If you ask uh, any pagan who doesn't really want to go to church, what would make you want to go to church? They'll say, well, it's got to be practical. It's got to give me stuff that I can really use. I don't want that religious stuff. But the the aspect of the Keswick movement is almost the complete opposite because these are people that came out of the holiness movement to a large extent who were trying. Uh, it's a form of pietism, right? We need to get closer to Jesus. We're not close enough yet. We're not living holy enough yet. And so um, so-and-so has got the new... Uh, way of teaching the new book, the new series of catchphrases, basically. Um, but they're both kind of the same. They both wind up uh, turning Jesus into a guy who is going to somehow give us a therapy session or some type of counseling, uh, some coaching, something like that. 
Yeah, absolutely. This this false Christ is again, you know, the two tiered mm-hmm. approach to Christianity is, is this false Christ is all about getting you to that second tier. And here here's here's the real problem with this is that uh, it causes us to move away from Christ. It causes us to move from uh, what we would say is dependence to independence. Um, and, but when we think about this, what does Jesus say in Matthew 18? He says this, he says, unless you are changed or turned and become like little children, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's not so much that we become you know, independent as Christians, but we're always being repented and, and, and brought to repentance by the law to see our sin so that we understand our total helplessness and we're always being returned back to Jesus. We're always being returned back to our baptisms, uh, frankly. And so we never move away from our baptisms. We never move away from Jesus. We always are returned back to him. Um, I, I love that that hymn that talks about um, the, the verse. I think it's uh, the first verse. It says, we're prone to wander and we're prone to leave the God that we love. And so the problem with the Christian with Christians uh, such as myself and everybody else, is not that we need to get to some second tier. Uh, the problem is we're we're wandering, we're leaving the God that we love, and so we're always having to be uh, brought back in repentance and faith back to the source of our faith, which is Jesus Christ, Him crucified and bloodied for us. Uh, but this this you know this therapist is is not the real Jesus. Um, nothing about returning us back to his blood and his wounds and his forgiveness of sins in the word and sacraments for us, but he's 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 manipulated and changed as some sort of base that we round or some sort of uh, you know almost kind of similar to that that mascot uh, where he, you know, he's cheering us on to get to some second tier, um, and and it essentially ruins it. And the way that we can pick out this false Christ is is simply this. Um, we listen to the language where you know a person says, "I was saved, you know, when I was twelve, but mm-hmm. now, but now I've yielded or I've done something, and now by the power of of this Jesus, now I'm in greatness, and I'm in you know I'm in wonder and and and, and greatness, and uh, things are fantastic, and uh, <laughs> I think the best way to to, to catch this is you you throw Romans seven at these people, uh, you, you know where Paul says the very good I want to do I don't do and the very evil I I despise I end up doing. And he says what a wretch that I am. Uh, it's it's the civil war of the Christian mm-hmm. fighting with the sinful nature, and you throw that at them and their heads come off. They come unglued because they, you know that's that's not how a Christian speaks. The Christian speaks uh, you know as as one traveling to greatness to the second tier, uh, and, and so it's just it's just a mess and there's no assurance. And actually, it drives people away from the real Jesus um, to independence where they're left all by themselves. Yeah, well, I was going to say, it it seems to be working for a while. You can convince yourself, really, of anything, especially if you have a group of people who are all like-minded. You can convince yourself of anything. I was in Amway back in the 90s, and we were convinced of this business, and we were going to have a great life because of this business. It was a total sham. But that group all believed together. And, you know, we kind of support each other in propping up that belief. The same thing can happen in the church. You can convince yourself that you're going to get to this higher level and you're finally going to reduce the effects of sin and you're going to have uh, all this victory. And it never happens. And if if uh, it seems to me, and I've said this before, Chris has said this before, I'm sure you've said this before, we've all said this, you either get to a place of despondency and despair and you maybe even abandon your faith or you get to a point of real annoying self-righteousness where you actually do think you've uh, you know, conquered sin once and for all, the first person in human history to do it. 
that's the most annoying person on earth. <laughs> it's a person who's pretending that they, you know, they have this victorious life. Um, yeah, th this is, this is a big issue. The, the therapist, Jesus, uh, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. Who was the, who are the people in the story? I, I don't remember. In yeah. This chapter. Uh, we, we, we meet, uh, Wendy, the life coach. That's and, right. That's uh, right. Yeah. And, and, uh, so in this, in this story, I'm, I'm invited, uh, kind of by, uh, without having a good excuse, invited to a, uh, growing more, uh, uh, kind of a, it's, it's not really a small group. It's more of a mini conference that happens each week. And, uh, you know, Mindy is actually, excuse me, not Mindy. Wendy is actually teaching on this. And then uh, another person gets up and shares their story, how they've moved from averageness to greatness through, through this, this false Christ. And, and uh, the whole thing is it's a, it's a movement of trying to move people from where they're at to a higher tier. And so the problem with that is there's never assurance. Uh, and, and in fact, and then once you realize or you've convinced yourself that you're at that second tier, then the need for Jesus really goes away. I mean, the, this false crisis only needed to kind of get you in that transition to to be that means to get to a different end. And for Christianity, the end is always Jesus. It's never something else. And so I've, I've said to people that, you know, uh, Jesus is not a means to joy. He is our joy. He's not a means to victory. He is our victory. And so if we're not uh, if we're not coming back to Jesus, we have a false Christ. And that's what the story really communicates, where uh, these individuals are being brought to the second tier. And it is. It is so incredibly um seductive i guess i could use the word seductive it actually it actually grabs a hold of our simple nature mm -hmm. and it seduces us to think that that i have the power within or the power of using this false christ to make it to some sort of greatness and then uh if it doesn't happen which we'll hear with another false christ called the, the giver of bling if it doesn't happen well then it's your fault you haven't yielded enough you haven't given enough to get to that second tier and uh there's no assurance absolutely no assurance with this false christ yeah the the number of people I've seen who claim to be life coaches now, oh man, it's, it's, it's funny. It's not funny, but I laugh at it because in a way it's, it's a sick sort of humor because, uh, this merging of success principles, like the, the, I, I am trying really hard not to use foul language when I talk about the global leadership summit that they have at Willow Creek. Cause it's half the people aren't even Christians. And they're talking about business principles and leadership. I, I, I am just dumbfounded at the emphasis on leadership and success within the evangelical church. It's just bizarre. And I, and I guess, you know, if you don't read your Bible, it makes sense that people would fall for anything. But there is nothing in the Bible about how we're all supposed to be great leaders and we're supposed to be uh, influencers and we're supposed to be life coaches. It's just crazy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, with this this false Christ, um, what's eliminated is this need to return to Jesus for forgiveness and life. So we 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 axe out this idea of going back to Jesus, and then what happens is you create a two tiered system, and then the the emphasis is to move beyond Jesus for personal higher fulfillment, hmm. and that that is the mantra and that is the push. So when we when we encounter this false Christ. Uh, you're, the person hearing this false Christ is going to sense trying to be moved somewhere. And that movement is going to be up to some obscure greatness, and it's not being moved back to Jesus. So, like, for instance, at Zion Lutheran Church here in Gwinner, 
when you come to church here, uh, my goal and my emphasis is every time a person leaves the church that they would know that Christ is for them in the forgiveness of sins, that they've received Jesus, that they're reminded of their baptisms, reminded of what Christ did for them, that they hear in the words of, of the gospel that Christ is for them and that they belong to Jesus and that they've received uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his body and blood given and shed for them. And so that they would leave knowing that they are one who belongs to Christ and that Christ is in them and they are in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is my goal because that's where assurance is found. That is that is where hope is found is in the forgiveness of sins in Christ. Um, but if, you, if you're not in that setting where you return to Jesus, you're oftentimes with this false Christ of the uh, therapist Christ in this Keswick theology, you're being moved somewhere else, somewhere uh, obscure. It's not necessarily even defined, mm-hmm. but it, it's to a second tier of greatness. And in the mix of it, you lose Jesus. You absolutely lose the real Jesus. Can you um, name some of the most prominent Keswick teachers that our, our listeners may be familiar with? I mean, wouldn't you say well, Oswald Chambers was really kind of the pinnacle? He, he came later, but he took a lot of those ideas and encapsulated them in his writings, or am I wrong? Well, boy, I guess I'm not not extremely familiar with Oswald. Um, but what, you know, here's the crazy thing, is that this uh, ideology, uh, Keswick theology, which you know you mentioned before, it's not Keswick; it's Keswick theology. Um, this ideology it, it permeates so much teaching. It's it's. I guess if you were to go into a Christian bookstore, and or go into Barnes and Noble. All you would have to do is go into a Christian living section. Yeah. And if you go to the Christian living section, look at the titles and ask yourself the question, where are these books leading me to? A uh, perfect example would be uh, Joel Osteen's uh, Your Best Life Now. You know, so uh, if you read that book, if, if I were to approach that book, if I had not read anything, putting the best construction, what would my best life look like right now? Well, I would say if I were to write a book titled My Best Life Now— you would open it up and you would hear about Jesus Christ dying and bleeding, resurrecting for you, that you are found in Jesus. Um, but as you look at Olstein's book, uh, he doesn't return you to the blood, the blood and the wounds and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, he, he talks about moving to a different tier. And so go into any Christian living section and ask yourself the question, where are these books attempting to take me? Where do they want to point me? Where are they going to transition me from the here and now to, to some other place? And if it's not Jesus Christ, um, most likely there's Keswick theology embedded in their ideology. And frankly, I don't think many of these individuals even realize that they have uh, bought into this kind of ideology. Yeah, because it's so prominent. It's it's become normalized. It's it's what everybody assumes it has to be true because everybody keeps saying it. I know that well, uh, Dwight Moody was a guy who he was not a part of the group, but he took a lot of their ideas because they worked. Uh, they were part of the language of his time, and he just adopted it. So it, it came in through some some of the prominent teachers who who weren't necessarily first generation. Right. And what's amazing, too, is this ideology, if you really go the way of Keswick theology, um, all you would have to do is is really remove this false Christ and you can import anything else you want into it. And the next thing you know, your your hook, line and sink are right in line with people such as Oprah and the talk shows yep. that we see. Yep. Uh, it, it just it is no 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 wonder why some of these individuals that preach this, they can so much um, have so much in common with uh you know, a complete pagan on this, right? Uh, because it's it's the it's the 
the myth of the, the carrot on the end of the stick that we all want to have. Uh, it's very, it, too, it's, you come up to a person and say, hey, would you like to have greatness in your life? Who's going to say no to that? Right. Uh, do you want to have greatness? Do you want to have a better, you know, better marriage, better success, better business? Why, yes. Well, just do this and follow this principle and you will be in greatness. Boy, that is so incredibly seductive well, and it's, uh, for all humanity. And it's it's seductive, and you can actually trick people into thinking that it's Christianity and that it's working for them. Because a lot of the pastor's sermons are basically motivational speeches with a sprinkling of Jesus at the very end. So the whole thing is all the steps you need to take. Joel Osteen's got to be the absolute pinnacle of this sort of thing, where he doesn't talk about God at all. He, he's, he talks about having a good attitude and having a positive attitude and speaking things into existence. And then at the very end, he just maybe will say a prayer, maybe. You know, Jesus, help us to do these things, which I just taught all these people how to do. That's basically our, uh, the same exact thing that Oprah says. Only at least Oprah doesn't, you know, tack Jesus on at the very end. She says it's all within you that you can do these things. And, you know, the the Christian version says, do all these things and, you know, ask Jesus to help you, and he will, as if Jesus actually promised to help you, you know, uh, achieve your dream destiny thingy. Okay, so this is morphing perfectly into the next one, which is the word of faith thing. They're, they're overlapping a great deal. The giver of bling. This is the Jesus who grants health, wealth, and success to those whose faith in him reaches the, the level that it should. So you, you teach people a bunch of life principles, which will work for any pagan. You know, having a good attitude, working hard, thinking the best, you know, being positive. Uh, you'll attract good things in your life if you're a positive, uh, attractive person. All that stuff is true. I mean, think about it. If you're a crabby person who's negative all the time, you're not going to have a lot of friends. You're not going to have a lot of success. No one wants to be around you. This is not Christianity. This is just common sense. Any Anybody can figure this stuff out. Uh, but so the word of faith takes it a step further and, and says – not only do you have to have a good attitude, which is fine. I, I, good attitude's fine. I, I try to have a good attitude. I fail most of the time. But still, you know, it's nothing to to, um, to not do. But they say if you actually say things, the things that you say have power. And God will then swoop down when he sees the power that your words have as if God was actually – beholden to us that that the holy spirit is like a, a magic genie if we just rub the lamp the right way he'll give us whatever we want it's crazy this is one of my biggest frustrations when i write about the word of faith movement and it's really the same thing as the new apostolic reformation there isn't a lot of difference when i when i talk about this stuff i have a really hard time not getting angry because it's just so dumb and it's just witchcraft okay i'm done with my rant i'll let you talk now <laughs> well, in this chapter, we, we, we do. We meet uh, the giver of bling, this false Christ, but we actually meet this false Christ through um, a couple, actually a, a situation of a, of a girl named Olivia who uh, has a brain tumor and is actually dying. And we encounter, uh, you know, this 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 poor poor little girl dying and uh, struggling with this disease and struggling with the cancer. And uh, we meet Jim and Stacy, the blessed they're called, and uh, Jim and Stacy Jager. And again, these are fictitious people and uh, based upon real life events. And these fictitious characters, Jim and Stacy, uh, they they have a prayer group. 
And they are teaching uh, individuals in regard to Olivia Dime that if they speak positive words and if they pray hard enough, if they storm the gates of heaven, then Jesus will, by default, have to honor uh, their requests and give health and happiness and what I basically summarize as bling, which is health, wealth, and happiness, uh, this Jesus will have to dispense goodness um, as a way of, uh, you know, honoring and, and respecting these words of faith. And so, Again, in this one, uh, you know, when it comes to creating this false Christ, the giver of bling, you take the real Jesus and you mu- you minus any suffering. You don't want to talk about suffering, and and you don't want to see faith as a gift that receives uh, from God. So faith is not passive. Faith is not receptive for this kind of thinking. And you don't want to talk about suffering either, because you know that would be talking about uh, badness or bad things. And then you, what you want to do is you want to add on to that that this. This false uh, Jesus is all about dispensing, uh, you know, uh, health, wealth, and happiness, and that uh, faith then becomes a self-generated work. That faith is that which releases and actualizes and 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 um, uh, taps into those good things that this false Christ wants to dispense, and so. That's what happens. Jim and Stacy they gather a group together, and uh, you know we're going to uh, storm the gates of heaven, and that this false Christ, that this giver of bling, would dispense health for little Olivia. And as we'll hear in the story, a little Olivia dies, and that's uh, you know that's the tragedy. She mm-hmm. dies from this. So then we're faced with this huge problem: uh, why did she die? And Jim and Stacy's uh, solution to this, and this is just tragic, but their solution is. Well, we didn't pray enough. We did not uh, have enough faith. Because if we did have enough faith, and we we did pray enough, if we did storm the gates of heaven enough with positive words words of faith, then then this false Christ would have dispensed healing to Olivia, and she would have been healed. And uh, but because she died, therefore the problem then arises with the individuals that we did not pray enough, and we did not actualize yeah. enough faith. To, to bring about this desired result. What so a, it's just, it's just it's a horrible burden to place on anybody. It's just oh, horrible. It's it's wretched. I mean, and I, I, boy, I, I don't say that um, when I say wretched, I do not say that uh, as, as some self-righteous, arrogant jerk. I say that from just a lamenting in my heart, right. believing this ideology, it is, it is just poison. It is absolutely poison uh, to believe this. And the weight, man, think of the weight. Uh, you know, going around life saying, I didn't pray enough, and poor Olivia died. It's because of me. I didn't pray mm-hmm. enough. Yeah. Uh, my yeah. goodness. And then oh. you, you have to spend the rest of your life thinking about the fact that you didn't do enough. And this is this is how people lose their faith. They just give up because it's an un, unbearable burden to think that now I've got to go through the rest of my life trying to please this God who let my child die because I didn't have enough faith. It's it's a lose-lose situation big time. Well, and, and what makes this also difficult, and boy, not trying to give away the whole book in this, but uh, the whole chapter, but but there, there's, there's an essence where uh, this is another $25 word that we talk about in this chapter, uh, that they have an over-realized eschatology. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is this, is it is true. We would say it's absolutely true that in Jesus, that there will be no more tears, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more death, no more sin. But that happens when Christ comes back and calls us unto himself. And so whether he comes now or in a hundred years, the reality is Christ is coming back 
the great trumpet will sound, the graves will burst forth, that our bodies and souls will be reunited. We'll be given brand new bodies. Uh, I would say it'll be a Matt Richard 2.0 of a 2.0 body. And I will stand in the presence of Jesus. I will kneel and I will confess him and I will never have pain. I will never have crying. I will never have suffering ever again because I'm in Christ. But that is true. But what can happen is we can take that. That happens at the great eschaton or the great end of the day. When when the very end of the earth, everything happens at the very end of the age. That will all happen. That's all true. But then what we can do is we can reach forward and grab those promises in the Bible that are promised to us after Jesus comes back to take us home. And we can grab those promises and we pull them back out of the future Uh, We pull them out of the future, and we pull them back to ourselves, and we say those are ours right now. Right. Uh, And that's the problem, you know, with with Jim and Stacy. They they, they are reading the Bible, and they take the promises that Scripture give to us that will happen someday when we're resurrected— and we are uh, with Jesus for eternity, uh, and we take those promises and we claim them right now as if they are our right, and as if the giver of the bling wants to dispense those right now in the here and now, when they're not intended to be dispensed right now, they're being intended to be dispensed at that future point. Well, Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one of my many pet peeves, I, I have... A harder and harder time now listening to Fighting for the Faith when Chris plays these sermons from these dingbats and frauds who call themselves pastors. One of my biggest pet peeves is hearing somebody say, sure, Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins, or Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but it's so much more than that. He died so that we could have health and happiness and prosperity, blah, 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 whatever it is. That sentence is just so blasphemous and so wrong to say that uh, granting us eternal life forever is no big deal. What really counts is this life and the success and happiness and health that we're going to have. It's just so completely upside down. And and they do it with such uh, confidence, you know, like I (laughs) – well, sure, it's not it's not just saying that prayer and getting to go to heaven when you die. It's so much more than that. And and they all do it. Even the people who aren't necessarily total word of faith people still do it. It's it's all over the evangelical church. And it's just fundamentally wrong. That's what I love about being a confessional Lutheran is that we hear about Jesus dying for our sins and it constantly brings us back to that every single service, like you said. And I think that one of the greatest ironies for my wife and I is how we would come away from our previous church services feeling like ah, another week. You know, I didn't do enough. I, I got a, I got browbeaten. You know, the pastor basically told me to do more and try harder. And don't you feel bad that you didn't do enough? Now we, we, we come away from church feeling refreshed and it's not because we've been given a pep talk. It's because we've been brought back to the gospel itself. Just like you were saying, we're, we're given Jesus himself. We're not given a bunch of, life skills and, you know, coaching ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing to keep in mind, too, is this, is, you know, the scriptures talk about that, uh, you know, for the Lord works all things together for the good of those who love him. And so when you think about that, that means the good and the bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, All of these things are worked together. And I've often told people that uh, the biggest blessings in my life um, have actually been times of pain. Uh, So the Lord actually uses... 
uh, boy, the attacks of the evil one, uses my own stupidity and my own sin, uses the attacks of the world, all of those things for the good of me. And so um, I would, I've told people before that I've learned, definitely learned how to be a pastor through uh, the seminaries that I've attended, um, but I've learned more through the tentatio. Now, tentatio is a Latin word for soul struggles. Hmm. I've learned, I've learned the most through the soul struggles of being a pastor, of of the uh, failings and the struggles and the pains of life. Uh, because you, know, you, you think about this too. Psalm one nineteen talks about this, the tentatio, the the soul struggle of the Christian. And uh, it's not so much that we have to identify, you know, is it the devil that I'm afflicted by? Is it the world that I'm afflicted by? Or is it my own sin? Or is God disciplining me? Mm-hmm. It's not so much us trying to discern that, but w- but rather what's more important is understanding where to now. And you see, when, when, when struggles happen, they, they drive us, as Psalm 119 says, it drives us to the Word. It drives us to Jesus. And so... I know for myself that some of the greatest struggles in my life and the pains in my life, they have turned out to be the greatest blessings because they were the time that I was ground down to nothing, complete, total dependence, and I was driven to Jesus and his word. And in the midst of my greatest pain and deepest struggles, uh, being able to confess, uh, you know, my life might fall apart. Uh, Boy, this might happen. I don't know what I'm doing, but I do know that Jesus loves me and I am forgiven. Mm-hmm. And that is enough. And that is enough. And that really you know? is enough. It, yeah. A lot of people say that, but in the back of their mind, they're saying, yeah, but I know when I'm humble enough, God's going to reward me by giving me stuff. There's, right. al- there's always that underlying theme there that, you know, uh, you hear people tell their testimony about how, you know, I, I, I was broken and I finally gave up on myself. And that's when God said, okay, now you're ready to be blessed. It's a a catch-22 that doesn't exist in Scripture. The only thing we know for sure is that we will be rewarded after we die. Absolutely. And that's that's a great assurance. I'm 53 now, so I'm a little bit closer. I hope it's not real close, but whatever the case, if it's tomorrow or if it's in 40 years from now, that is reality for all of us. No matter what age, we're all going to die. We're all going to die, and we're all going to have to— see what happens after death. We can't avoid that. You know, no life coaching right. is going to help us at that point. We can't, right. we can't speak things into existence when we're dead, you know? Right. Oh, man. Well, and then the tragedy is this, is this uh, false Christ, the giver of bling uh, does not work with suffering. Uh, yeah. Boy, you, you take, you take the, the you take the, the giver of bling, this false Christ, the giver of bling, and you go to the hospital or you go to the, uh, the cancer section, the cancer treatment section of any hospital, you bring the giver of bling in there. Uh, he doesn't function. He right? does not. <laughs> He's like, uh, get me out of here. He says. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't work that way. And it's only, only the Jesus, the real Jesus of the Bible functions with true suffering what suffer uh, that because that, he suffers with us he he understands our sufferings he he has suffered all things you know uh like we have uh for goodness sakes he has bore our sin on the cross i mean he understands the weight of sin itself by uh you know experiencing hell on that cross being judged for our sin hmm. and so when it comes to this this giver of bling only holds up uh really only holds up in, in in situations of prosperity, but as we'll hear, you know, for those who buy the book, uh, as we look at that chapter with Jim and Stacy, the blessed, when when Olivia dies, this this false giver bling, uh, this false Christ, the giver bling, actually scurries and runs away. Mm. Uh, this false Christ cannot deal with the reality of Olivia dying from cancer, uh, but it's only the real Jesus. 
that can speak into that family that lost Olivia. It's only the real Jesus that can speak about everlasting life, but right. the false Christ uh, doesn't hold up, doesn't hold up with suffering. Well, this is a perfect place to stop because I think we're in our time limit and we'll do the, the second half of this list next time we talk. But for now, thank you so much. Is the book, yeah. is the book publicly available now? Well, do you it, have a it, launch date? Yeah, the launch date is June 6th. Okay. And um, if people go to, let me, I'll repeat this twice. It's www.cph.org slash real Jesus. Uh, it's www.cph.org slash real Jesus. And that is the uh, landing page. And so you can download the first chapter for free. Uh, there's also a video on that. And I believe uh, that whole site is is under construction right now. So in the ne next couple, upcoming couple of weeks, I believe there are going to be free downloads, uh, inserts, uh, PDF files. Um, they're also developing, my understanding too, is they're developing a course for hmm. this. Oh, so people great. can actually go through the whole book. Uh, there's study questions at the end of each chapter. But there's a course you can go through that uh, if you want to do with a group of people, if you want to do it by yourself or a church wants to do it. Uh, so there's a course that will be launched in June, an interactive website for that as well. So oh, a lot great. of wonderful resources. Uh, so yeah, check it out, uh, cph.org slash realjesus. And uh, you can order it, pre-order it there, download the first chapter, and resources will be available soon. Awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time, and we will talk again soon. Sounds good. Thank you, Steve. Yep. Appreciate it. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Till next week on Tuesday, may God richly bless you. In the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>